0: Okay, let's go to Matthew chapter number 7, or 5, verse number 7. Matthew 5, verse 7, we are in a study of the Beatitudes. And today we have a very special one before us, verse number 7 of Matthew 5, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now, each one of these, I'm giving a B. To help us remember them as we go through the list. And so a B attitude would for The first one, blessed are the poor in spirit. What's our word? Bankrupt. Bankrupt. Second one, blessed are the... Those that mourn. Bleeding. The third one, verse number five. Blessed are the gentle. Broken. The next one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Burning, very good. New word for you today is called burdened. Blessed are the merciful, we're talking about burdened. And that's what we will focus on today. Remember, as we look into these things, these are the words that Jesus spoke. And when he says, these folks are blessed, he knows what he's talking about. These are the ones he blesses, especially. We're going to talk about that today. So let's ask the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, your word is before us again. We are so thankful for it, thankful that we have it. And I pray that we make the most of our time right now as we open it up and study from it, that you might challenge our hearts thoroughly. Help us to see what you see. Help us to. Conform, because that is exactly what your Spirit's doing within us, conforming us to the image of Christ, that we may be like him, that we might serve him. This is a very important one of these statements before us, and I pray that you'll help us to grasp it well and to do it. For your honor and your glory, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen. Now remember, as we're going through these, Beatitudes, we're not looking at a merit system that somehow if you do these, the Lord will bless you as if that might save you. Some people would assume things like that, or that somehow you gain more favor with Him if you put these as a checklist and you go through and say, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that. There's there's a lot of people who follow rules and laws and things like that and think they're impressing God. God sees your heart. And that's what these words are all about. These are not... Words written to make a law of how to do this and that according to the uh, the rules of a law. But these are the actions from a heart. And I've asked you this before, but i I love to hear your response. You want to serve your master, don't you? Absolutely. That's what this is setting before us. These are the things that pleases him. And so we're going to walk through uh, verse number seven today, blessed are the burdened. So far we've dealt with the verse number three, blessed are the poor in spirit, the bankrupt. That dealt with our pride. Because we want to bring things to the table, and he says start with nothing. And that's the best place for us to be. Then we dealt with the bleeding issue, those who mourn. And I give it an emphasis more on the side of uh, recognizing Honestly, recognizing our own sinfulness. Where would we be without Christ? And even as a believer, do you not still grieve at times when you realize, you know, wow, I wish I were everything that the Lord has designed me to be. I wish I were walking in a manner worthy of the calling that he has called me. And and sometimes it just breaks the heart. The bleeding is the word I used for that. Uh... And that's a good place to stand before him too because we don't stand in our righteousness at all. It's only in his. And sometimes we need a consciousness of that. And that's what I underscored with blessed are they who mourn uh, because we need a consciousness of where we stand spiritually uh, and what he has done for us spiritually to change us forever. Um, blessed are the broken. That's the issue of usefulness the issue of obedience. And that really got uncomfortable, didn't it? To walk down that road and study that uh, as to whether or not we are willing to be used and if we're obedient to be useful to our master. These get, by the way, they get a little more uncomfortable as they go. Just so you know, (laughs) I think it's fair warning, Uh, I believe that these things are also sometimes understood to be a process. Not that we just pick one and say, hey, I'll do this for 30 days and then I'll try another one. But they're a process of maturity in your relationship with the Lord. The first four, which we've dealt with already, especially this last one, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, dealt with our attitude and the desire. Do you have an appetite? Not just for God, not just for His Word, but for the application of all that, the righteousness that that text talks about. A hunger and thirst for righteousness. Peter says that we ought to be looking forward to the day when there is a new heaven and earth in which righteousness dwells. Folks, we are going to be so shocked what that feels like when we get there. Because we don't know that. We don't live in a world that's righteous, do we? And that's going to be an amazing thing. But do you long for that? That's what it talked about. A burning, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Boy, is that a test of the heart. Today we move into the next one. And I told you it was the word burdened. Blessed are the burdened. And that has to do with mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It's interesting to see how God prepares people for ministry. We have some examples in the scriptures of his preparation process. Take a man by the name of Moses. Forty years he dwelt in Egypt. 40 years educated as a good Egyptian as a leader among the Egyptians learning the ways uh, of the Egyptians and God says I'll balance that with 40 years in the wilderness I'll train you to be my man to think my way he sent him off to the wilderness for 40 years and then what did he do after 80 years altogether he said now you're ready lead my people The Apostle Paul was trained most of his younger life in the ways of the Pharisee, in the training of the law, knowing it inside and out, and I'm sure he did. You could tell that by certain books like Romans. But the Apostle Paul trained to to hold to the law with a fervency like very few people knew. And then the Lord captured his heart on that road to Damascus. And took him out to the wilderness, some fourteen years. Took him out there to train him, reshape his heart to understand the gospel and to know it well, and to come back with a fervency to follow Jesus Christ. We have a man by the name of Peter, a fisherman. Remember, well, he went. He went down the rough road. For some of us, we'd say, "I wouldn't want to go to his school." He pe- seemed to say the wrong things at the wrong time. He seemed to be very strong in his interest of what he thinks should happen. He was in self-preservation. Not only did he think maybe he should defend the Lord, as you know, in the garden, but just a little bit after that, he thought he better defend himself against a little servant girl who asked him if he was belonging to that man who was under arrest. Self-preservation. Peter was good at that one. But the Lord talked to him one day about something like that. He said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail, and when you have once turned again, strengthen your brothers. A simple little statement, but what was that saying? Jesus says, you've got a rough road in front of you. You're going to have a tough time here. But when you've gone through that education... I'm going to put you in service to help others that's exactly what Peter did I enjoy his letters very much 1st and 2nd Peter they are ministries to those who need strengthened but here's a passage you probably know well keep your bookmark here go to 2nd Corinthians chapter number 1 2nd Corinthians chapter number 1 it's not that far after the book of Romans if you can't find that book then we might have to start that st- series again. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, verse 4. Look at these words. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that... Here we go. Why? So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. What do we use? The comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That's a very important verse. I'm afraid we usually bring it up only at funerals. But it's an essential verse for us as believers. Have we not received comfort and mercy from our Father? Why has He done that for us? That we might be useful. That we might be able to share that with others. You're in school, folks. Did you know that? You're in school. You're being trained for service. The things that we look at and say, "Boy, that's a tough part of life," or "That was a that was an interesting part of life," or "That was a challenging part of life." God says, "That's your education." And trusting me, learning of my mercy, and passing it on to others. Here's a simple way of saying what I want to this morning. Sometimes we just need our tank filled so we can get out and do the work. The Lord does that in such a gracious way for us. And the pattern seems to fit this way, that we need some time with him to learn of him, learn of his word. And then he overflows that into the lives of others through us. Mercy, the word we have before us today, is the result of an activated heart. It's the result of an activated heart. It is the overflow of a full soul. It's something God has done. That works its way out. Here's two words, basically, I'm going to uh, set before you, and I've got to make sure I say them right, because I wrote it down here. Look at all these great pages. This is going to be fun. Mercy, you could define it in two ways. Alright? It sees, it moves. Alright? Those are the two words we're going to work through this morning. It sees, it moves. And I'll show you what that means as we work our way into this passage. Because eyes that have experienced misery can now spot it in others. The things that God has trained us for in ministry, He intends for us to have in ministry. You see, God uses His textbook, the Bible, to teach us that His tests are the experiences of life as to whether or not we've learned the lesson, whether or not we've understood what he has told us. You see, you you just can't pick any portion of scripture and say, well, I'm just going to work on that one, and, and then I'll get to the other ones later. The Lord has a way of working all these things together. And like I said before, you can't just pick one of the Beatitudes and say, well, I'll just do that one and not worry about the rest, because they're all part of the maturation process. They're all making us what we need to be. And this is what I found interesting as I looked through the pattern of these Beatitudes. The first four primarily deal with me and my God. My issues of pride. My issues of sin. My issues of, of being useful and obedient. And my issues of an attitude that has an appetite for what's right. He's dealt with me one on one as to where I stand in my love and desire to serve Him and now once we get into verse number 7 you start to see it take an outward approach don't you now it's to the merciful it's to the peacemaker It, it, it mentions those who are are pure in heart it mentions those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness we're starting to look outside now to service as we've been trained, it's meant to prepare us for what God would have us to do. Now remember, verse number 7, he's talking about those to whom he approves. That's the nature of blessed. These are the ones that please God. These are the things that he approves. This is why he puts a stamp on and say, yes, that's what I want you to be. Blessed ones are the merciful. Now, you want to be blessed. I know. This is what he tells us. So, let's walk through it and understand it, because I think it's quite, quite fascinating. I use the word burdened. When I say that word, what do you think? Burdened. Say, well, we don't like that word so much. Sounds heavy. You say, well, you're such a burden to me. Are you complimenting somebody? Generally not. We, we don't use it. We don't really use it in a positive way. Nobody says, boy, I want to be burdened today. No, Nobody thinks along those lines. They, they see it as a load, don't they? They see it as something heavy. They see it as something you kind of trudge about and try to get through. You say, boy, I can't wait to rest. Right, where's the end of the road? Where, where's the stopping place? Burden is not a pleasant word. It's just not a pleasant word. And you may say, well, mercy sounds a whole lot better, Pastor. Why didn't you do all M's? Instead so of these B's. Why, why a B? Why burdened? is what they used to say in the early centuries. Mercy may be practiced in many ways. Not by money alone, but by word. And if you have nothing to say, by tears. Mercy is an active term. If you were to look it up and start to dig through it, even in some of my, my uh, lexicons, Greek dictionaries, these are some of the terms I use here. Actively compassionate. Now the key actively in front of that is important. Actively compassionate. Being compassionate by word or deed. Showing mercy. you see action tied to all of those? Showing mercy. You, you see, it's not just a word that I see. It's a word that involves movement. Because we say the phrase, even in Scripture, He was moved with compassion. He was moved with with compassion. One commentator said this, it was to make the condition of another our own. I thought those are those are pretty profound comments, but I want to show you it in action first, okay? And then I'll go into more of a definition here in a minute. But you're in Matthew 5, go to chapter 9 for a minute. And this was not one day in the life of Jesus, but boy, it must have been like that because there is a a turning point in the middle of the chapter that moves into another time spot. But here's here's something that I found interesting. When you start Matthew chapter 9, Jesus is in the real heart of the ministry years, as we would have it, uh, with the activity he's doing. And it says in verse number 1, we'll start right here, getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. And they brought to him a paralytic... Lying on a bed. This poor guy. You know his story It's pretty rough. His friends wanted desperately to help him. It says, Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. Now it goes on later. He says in verse number 6, Get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and went home. Seeing the paralytic and the faith of his friends, he healed him. You see the two words put together? That's compassion. He saw, and it moved him to act. Let's look at chapter, the, the next part of the chapter, verse number 9. Jesus went on from there. He saw a man called Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector sitting at a tax collector's booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Here again, Jesus sees Matthew. How many people look at a tax collector with compassion? How many of you rejoice when the IRS envelope comes to your house? Aha! Jesus saw him. And notice, he didn't just walk by. He said, follow me. He was moved to invite him to follow. He called him. Look down uh, a little further. Um, Try verse 18. While he was saying these things, there was a lot going on by the way. He went to a dinner. He was at the dinner uh people were asking him about uh you know theological questions and such like that but what he did say or just go with this verse 13 he told the 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 rich pharisees and all the rest go and learn what this means i desire compassion and not sacrifice now verse number 18 While he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hands on her, that she will live. Jesus got up. Look at the action right away. Did he have compassion on this man? Yes. And immediately, Jesus gets up and begins to follow him. So does his disciples. Now right in the middle of that, verse 20, A woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage hemorrhage for 12 years came up behind him, touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. Right in the middle of a compassionate act, he had another compassionate act to help this lady. Verse number 27. Verse 27, Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. So when he entered the house, the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes. Was there compassion again? He saw their need? He did something about it. He was moved, and he touched them. Verse number 32, As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, what just happened? This this man was brought to the Lord, and it doesn't say the rest of the story except that the man was healed. Jesus saw the need, and he met the need. He was moved to help this man and released him from this demon-possession. Verse number 35, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. Now this is where it gets important. I mean, not that the others wasn't, but this is very important. Verse 36, this sums up this chapter. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. He was moved with compassion. All the way through you see stories like that, don't you, of Jesus? He sees the need and he's moved to meet the need over and over and over and over again. The Greek word for this, by the way, is splogna. I love the sound of that word. That's the word for intestines. You say, okay, what's that mean? That's the way the Greeks said they felt something. Right here, we say, "I love you with all my heart." You would love to get their valentines because they love you with their kidneys. They love you with their intestines. I mean, that's where they're moved. That's where they feel things. It right? doesn't look very nice either on the card, I'm sure. But this is this is a picture uh, of you know the feeling. You know, if you have something wrong right here, you shut down. What else works? you got to lay down. You say, I can't move. I can't do anything. Why? Because that is bothering me. Now you understand what it means to be moved with compassion. They call it in other translations, the bowels of mercy. That's why. That's the word you're looking at here. It sounds very interesting, but that's the kind of response we're looking at here that triggers the emotion that calls for something to be done. It's not satisfied until something is done. So if we're going to become more like our Savior, we certainly need to learn what is a merciful response. What is the action that goes with this? This, this is something that the Lord has for us to learn. Colossians will tell you that. Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 12. I'll read this to you. Listen very carefully. Colossians 3 verse 12. So, as those who have been chosen of God, have you been? You're holy and beloved, right? Put on a heart of compassion. Very first phrase. Put on A heart of compassion. Kindness. You know, kindness is not in the Beatitudes. I wish it were more in our country. I think of the lack of kindness. There are so many words I could say, boy, I wish I'd see more of. But wouldn't you like to see more kindness? We're called to put on kindness. When nobody else is kind, we should be kind. You want to you want to experience it close up? This past week, standing at the ticket booth at the airlines when they just canceled your flight, and you're wondering what's next. There are some people who are not kind. They get very upset because you know you just messed up their whole life. That's what it seems. And on and on and go. I stood in the line with. One person after another person after another person just wearing down that poor lady on the other side trying to get new tickets for him. I I felt sorry for her when I got up there. I just said, thank you for what you're doing. And you could just see her rest for a second. That smile just kind of popped up there on her face. And when she found out I really had solved most of the problem, she felt even better about that. But but it was just a, a picture of how our world is designed anymore. We talk about, you know, being merciful. We talk about being kind. This text in Colossians tells us to put on a heart of compassion and kindness. And if we don't do it, folks, the world isn't going to fill the gap. You know? We're called to do that. This is important. Put it on, he says. Put on humility. Put on gentleness. Put on patience. Bear with one another. Forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. If you're ever having an issue with forgiveness and you come to Pastor Bob and say, what do I need to do? I'm going to take you to this verse every time. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. That's what it says. Aren't you glad He forgave you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Put on this heart. That's what he's talking about in First John chapter three, verse seventeen. Here's First John three seventeen. It says, "Whoever has the world's goods, behold, his brother and need, He sees it and closes his heart. That's the word for bowels of compassion. It closes him off. It's really quite an interesting Greek word. He just kind of cinches it up and holds it, and it just he's 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 purposely constrained himself in this." The Lord says, how does the love of God abide in Him? How can it abide in Him? How can we have the name of Christ, but not the character of Christ? Jesus said, blessed are the merciful. You know, this is going to reveal your walk with the Lord. Really. This word mercy, because it it doesn't just see... It moves. It can see human wretchedness. But it has an impulse to relieve that. And you know, of all people on earth, we Christians know the answer, don't we? Do you know what the answer is to sin? To Savior. Bondage? The Lord Jesus Christ died. Set us free from the chains of sin and death. We know the answer, don't we? This is the point. Mercy is just like that. It says, I see and I'm moved with the solution to the need. There's another passage. I think I've got a minute. Let me add to it. Jude. Jude. The last section of Jude is probably one of the most uncomfortable sections in Christian responsibility. But I want to read it to you. It's uh, verse 21 through verse 23. It's in the book of Jude. You know, this little book of Jude is so potent. <laughs> Someday we'll go through that. It'll take us a year, I promise. It's just so potent. Look at look at what it says in verse 21. Now, let's back up just 20 through 23. But you, beloved... Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Praying in the Holy Spirit. That, that's your personal maturity. Keeping yourselves in the love of God. Waiting anxious for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. That's, that's our personal care for ourselves. Look at what happens in verse 22. And have mercy on some. This is where it turns outward. You who love mercy, have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Those are uncomfortable phrases. Because that means you've got to dive into dirty places to help that. Some people say, well, can't, can't ministry just be clean and neat and easy? Jesus touched the lepers nobody else would this is a tough spot but I'm trying to explain mercy to you and that's what I'm trying to show you here it's the compassion of the soul it's moved it makes the condition of another person our own in that we're grieved with the misery and we're stirred to act to help them let me tell you what it's not, right? Sometimes it helps to go backwards a little bit and say, okay, this is not mercy. There's a Roman view. There's a Roman view of mercy, which is, that is the worst possible thing you could possibly be, is merciful. That is a Roman perspective. We used to play a game in, in school when we were younger uh, that involved mercy, You would go against one of your your friends, or they would be for a few more minutes. Um, You would lock fingers with them. Both hands up, lock fingers. Maybe you played this game before. And the goal is to bend the other one's hands, fingers, all the way back until they're down on their knees crying out, Mercy. All right? Now, there's a trick to that, by the way. That worked very well. Because as you're pushing them back, that's uncomfortable. But I found that if you squeeze your fingers tight, too, at the same time, that adds an awful lot more torture to the whole process. Because you're squeezing and their fingers are going numb and then they're going backwards. And and it works very well, in case you want to try that on somebody. But that was our game called Mercy. we played that every now and then. I don't think we ever broke anybody's fingers. But the Roman philosophers used to call mercy... The disease of the soul. Let me explain why. It was the supreme sign of weakness to a Roman. Mercy was a sign that you did not have what it takes to be a real man, and especially a real Roman. The Romans glorified manly courage, strict justice, firm discipline, and above all, absolute power. They looked down on mercy, because mercy to them was weakness, And weakness was despised above all other human limitations during much of the Roman history. A father decided at the birth of a child whether it would live or die. All he had to do was raise his thumb up or down. That was the Roman view of mercy. That's not this word. There was a self centered view of mercy. Self-centered view is, if you don't look up for yourself, no one else will. Isn't that somewhere in Scripture? No. Hoard it up for yourself. Get it before anyone else takes it. Here's why I say it this way. Because we love to receive mercy. Don't we? Aren't we glad that the Lord gave us so much? I picture it like a truck being backed up and the whole load dumped on us but we dispense it with a teaspoon. That's the hoarder. That's the one who loves to take it in, but are reluctant to give it out. Remember the disciples came up to Jesus one day and said, How many times must I forgive? And they even recommended a very generous number. Seven. And you know Jesus' response. Seventy times seven. And you say, okay, 491 times they're done. That's the way we think. God did not do that to us, did He? That's not His definition of mercy. You hit 491 and you're done. Because I think we would have been done a long time ago. But a self-centered view is like that. It counts. Because each of these offenses, each of these things, each of these acts of giving it cost me something, and they don't want to pay the price. That's not mercy, folks. That's not mercy. There's a self-interest view too. Uh, The other was a self-centered view, a self-interest view, where it's something like the way we do it today: we we put things into investments in order to receive back. Right? That's the idea. We think that's the American right. To, to be able to to be entitled to the profit, So we invest all this so that we can get something back. Sometimes we mistakenly apply that to the concept of mercy because you read right here, Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. So they say, Oh, I want to receive mercy so I'm going to be merciful so I can receive it back. All right? That's the way they, they view the passage. Now let me tell you what that looks like. They think... If we're merciful to others, they will be merciful to us. How many times has the world been merciful in reciprocation to mercy you've given to it? How likely is it to be merciful to you? Look at verse eleven. Matthew five, eleven. Does that look merciful to you? Look at those words. Blessed are you when people insult you, and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Oh, you've been merciful to them. Shouldn't they be merciful to you? Don't expect it from the world. And those who go into this are, are, are you know, discouraged, surprised, thinking that, well, if I'm only merciful to other people, they have to be merciful to me, because that's what God said. Don't expect it from the world, folks. That's not where mercy comes from, by the way. Because the giver of mercy is not man. It is God. He is the one that we're serving. If we're looking for man to give you some sort of praise or satisfaction or fill your need for mercy, you're looking in the wrong place. God is the merciful one. And so self-interest is not going to be the route for mercy either. There's a judgmental view, by the way, with mercy a judgmental view. He's like the judge in the courtroom. Uh, He hears the case. He sees the evidence. He decides that the party is worthy of mercy. Hmm. Isn't that an interesting one? Would you like the Lord to look at you that way? Say, oh, this one's worthy of mercy. I think of the Israelites as a sat around outside the city of Jerusalem, maybe sitting next to Jeremiah the day, that they see the whole city going up in smoke, their temple burnt to the ground. They're looking at that and thinking, oh, this is a tragedy. And it was. These people disobeyed the Lord over and over and over and over again for years, centuries. The Lord took it all away from them. And this is what you read in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassion fails not. They are new every morning and great is His faithfulness. If we're applying a judgmental view we're not looking through the eyes of our Savior. Now, I'm going to say something else related to that in just a minute but I wanted you to start with that thought. It does not evaluate who is worthy and who is not worthy of mercy. Mercy does not do that. But mercy at the same time is not careless. There's the blanket view. Oh, just so mercy everywhere. Everyone gets mercy. You know, and we parade around and mercy here and mercy there and, and all these other things as if it's just be dispensed without justice, without truth, without any sort of understanding at all. It's a mercy that ignores sin. It's a false mercy that allows disobedience to continue and it does not care. Its Enough for that soul. King Saul was a good example of a guy who uh, was commanded by God to do a job. And it was an ugly job, yes. He was to wipe out an entire group of people, including their king. And he was given a responsibility with concerning the Amalekites to wipe them out. But he chose to spare King Agag. He says, uh, uh, but that's merciful. And God says, you displeased me. You did not follow my instructions. Your act of of compassion is not what I asked you to do. King David had that same kind of compassion toward his son Absalom, who was rebellious, who was a wicked young man. And David would not deal with his son's sin. He had an attitude of carelessness, and that was not merciful. His son died. Is a tragic death. It's not merciful to overlook sin, folks, because of a loving attachment. Sin destroys, doesn't it? Do you care that that person can be destroyed because of the sin they're in? Does your mercy want to do something about that or just cover it up with a happy little blanket? You see, merciful mercy uh, and applying mercy—not only seasoning, but acts. So we can't use a blanket here. Now God is a hundred percent merciful, a hundred percent, but He's also a hundred percent just. The same God who created heaven has created the lake of fire. Now if you want a real philosophical theological discussion on mercy. Put those two things in the equation. It's an incredible thought to try to figure out how can that be merciful? Yet it is. Oh, it's incredible. We we won't even walk down that road right now because my time's almost up. I just want to talk about what is mercy. I'm going to give you three things here. First of all, just a definition and then the three things. This mercy we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 5 is not manufactured by man. This is God's mercy. It's a divine mercy. You cannot generate it, folks. I cannot generate it. It comes from somebody who stands before the Lord with nothing in their hands. They're bankrupt. They're bleeding because they know they have offended their God over and over and over again. And they still, even though He's forgiven them, they have a heart that wants to to, to recognize where they've been. There's a gentle brokenness about them that they're willing to serve. There's a burning now for what is righteous. And they stand before God and say, Lord, I don't have anything, anything to serve you at all. The best I have is my righteousness and it's a rag anyway. But I want to serve you and I want to do what you called me to do. And he says, then I will fill you with mercy. Why? He fills you. I like merciful, merciful, He fills you that you may dispense it. He says, of all the people on earth, you understand mercy because you received it. That's the picture of what we're looking at here. It's what God has approved. It's what a Christian has that God has initiated. And here's my three things about it. Mercy is what we have received It's undeserved. Isn't it? It's undeserved. We can go to Ephesians 2 and we could talk about, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and passages like that. We talk about the mercy. God, in His great mercy, looked down upon us. And He saw us as we were. His mercy looked down and saw our condition. That's a focus on our pain. His grace is a cure for our need. To focus on the pardon. He did that. I, I'm so thankful that God initiated it. That God started it. It's undeserved. And that's the second thing. It's initiated, it's how we received it. It's not what, only what we received, but how we received it. He did it. He did it. It was His initiative. He brought it to us, didn't he? How many of us were standing around saying, I need mercy? If he hadn't opened our eyes, we would have never known it. But he's the one who did it. He gave first. I could read to you Titus. You know Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Maybe you've memorized this passage. Let me give it to you one more time. Have you ever memorized it? Let me say, here's a good verse to memorize this, this month. Titus 3, verse 5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy. He saved us. By the washing of regeneration, by the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. He initiated it, folks. That's how we received it. If you're going to be a dispenser of mercy, understand number one, it's God's plan and it's God's supply. Alright? Here's the third thing. And it goes with this phrase it's God empowered. It's undeserved, it's God initiated, it's God empowered. It's divinely generated. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. It's where you're obedient to Him and you desire what's right. He says, okay, here's what's right. Go be merciful to those in need. See their need and reach out to them because you have that mercy from your Father to dispense it. It's His. It's not yours. Here's a great little passage in Romans chapter 12. starting verse 17. You want to practice mercy? Listen to this list. 17 through verse number 21. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Easy to do. Tough one. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your en- enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. You say, Yes, that's what I was hoping. What do you mean? It brings them to a conviction. Do not, overcome by, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Wow, those are tough things. Do you think it was easy for the disciples in the crowd to hear this phrase that day, blessed are the merciful, when they see Roman soldiers around their town? And they see Pharisees demanding they walk by the law or else God will take them out. Could you imagine living in such a harsh reality like that and Jesus saying, be merciful. Be merciful. Jesus exemplified that all the way through his life, especially as he went to a cross. So I challenge you today with this word burdened today may it take on a new picture for you in your heart and in your thoughts burdened not just seeing the need but being moved to meet it and do that all please do that all in the strength of the Lord walk with him heavenly father we've got so much to learn as believers, we have so much to learn in this life and so many things that we're called to do, but this is this is so important. And I pray that we will not miss what is set before us today. For you examine our hearts and you know what we think. You know the motivation of our actions. You, you know why we do what we do. And I'm afraid so many times, Lord, we might see the need and walk right by it. So many times, I know, that's what I've done. But Lord, you can teach us these things. And as you make us more like our Savior, this is one department you're working especially. So as we learn to submit to you and grow in your ways, teach us to be merciful, we pray. Because we have received mercy. And we thank you, Lord, for your work in our life and your great patience with us. And that faithfulness we've read about this morning, how your mercies are new every morning, how great is your faithfulness. Thank you for that, Lord. We do pray that you work in our hearts to be like our Savior. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.